last and concluding study on this little book of Habakkuk, which we were not able to complete last week. <clears throat> and I am afraid that we will not be able to go over what we said last week. There's far, far too much. Um, uh, anyone who has missed that, I think, will have to listen to the tape recording. There are, of course, some things we shall say this evening which naturally go back to some of the things we've said last week. And there, um, I am afraid, other things that I'm having to take for granted, you know, something of the background of Habakkuk. Um, there's just a little more I would like to add um, to what we were saying about the key to the book of Habakkuk. Um, you will remember that we have discovered that the key to this little book that opens up every single part of it is faith. We have discovered that the Lord um, her, uh, is seeking to teach us through the experience of the prophet Habakkuk that faith is absolutely essential. It is the primary and fundamental quality, if you like, that the Lord looks for in his children. And one of the things we have to learn, and why we have this little book of Habakkuk, is that there is an awful lot that goes by the name of faith, which is not faith at all. In other words, there's a tremendous amount of spurious faith. Faith that seems to be the real thing, that seems to be the gift of God, but in fact is not the gift of God. It is nothing to do with God. It is a product of our own being, of our own energy. And this little book of Habakkuk has been placed on record that we might see the Lord's very tender and gracious dealings with one of his servants who had such a spurious faith. It was mixed up with the real thing. It was mixed up with the real thing. If we'd known Habakkuk um, before he came into this deeper experience of the Lord, um, we would have rejoiced in his trust in the Lord, his faith in the Lord. The very fact that he is here with a great ministry of travail, and he is what we would have called one of the faithful of the land. Because, you see, he was heartbroken at what he saw uh, of the conditions. He was heartbroken at what he saw the apostasy and the, black, the, uh, and the backsliding and the superficiality amongst God's people. He was heartbroken at what he saw happening in the nations round about. All this... Uh, Habakkuk was keenly sensitive to, and he didn't just um, take it on in a sentimental way. Oh no, it went deeply into his spirit. And he was one of these that evidently could truthfully say, how long shall I cry? And I take it that he'd been crying for a very long time, because most of us have a deep-seated consciousness that we don't expect the Lord just to answer if we just sort of say in a second or two, now, Lord, what about the condition of thy people in this country? 
Uh, we don't reproach the Lord. We should say to ourselves quite spontaneously, I ought to pray much more than that. But of course, if you've been praying for a whole year, or two years, or three years, or perhaps a decade, or two decades, well, it might possibly and conceivably be that you might have some real argument with the Lord. Lord, how long? You seem to not bother. I can imagine that Habakkuk had sacrificed a lot to seek the Lord. He'd put aside a lot. He'd become perhaps... It is conceivable, unpopular, because of this, this one objective of his heart to which he was devoted, the taking hold of the Lord, that he would do something about the gathering uh, impetus uh, of evil uh, in, in the land. Well, you know... Uh, it was, in a sense, faith that drove Habakkuk to the Lord. It was faith that made Habakkuk take hold of the Lord. But it was faith mixed up with something altogether of himself. And he had not learned to distinguish uh, until he came into this experience. And you will remember that one of the things we were saying last week, amongst many others... And I believe where we ended last week was that it is a tremendous thing when the Lord shocks us. Now, there are a few Christians that the Lord shocks, and that's a wholly bad thing. It's a very good thing if every one of us in this room were to be really shocked by the Lord sometime in our experience. Shocked. There's not too strong a word. The Lord shocked Jonah. He shocked him. Oh, Jonah had got everything so beautifully taped. He could give study after study upon the Lord and the Lord's purpose. He could tell you all about God's great purpose for his people. He could tell you all about what the Lord's meaning was and the elect and everything else he could have told her and about what it was to be separated unto the Lord and holy unto the Lord and all these things I can imagine Jonah was a faithful prophet in. But you see, there came a day when the Lord horrified Jonah. He told him to go to Nineveh. And that was just too much for Jonah. And you know, Jonah, it so shocked Jonah, so terribly and truly shocked him. It wasn't just dramatic, but truly shocked him that he was convinced that the Lord himself had somehow or other got off the rails. That shows you how deeply it can go, you see. He'd got such a conception of the Lord, so established, so rooted in him, that when the Lord gave him a fire shaking, he almost wondered whether the Lord himself was off the rails. And though he goes into a fish's belly and is saved from it, and finally, or rather grudgingly, finds himself in Nineveh, preaching the message that he should have preached at the very beginning, he's yet convinced that the Lord, there's something wrong with the Lord. It's only at the very end of those dealings that finally the book of Jonah could be written because Jonah was got through by the Holy Spirit. He got into a new place. And this is true also of Daniel. You know, there was, although it may not have had quite such a vivid um, effect in Daniel, Daniel was a man who was terribly shocked by the Lord. The Lord shocked him by some of the things he saw. And he sort of reels for a while uh, at what what it was he saw. Now, 
Of course, I suppose in every prophet one perhaps couldn't use the word shock, perhaps startle you would have to use in some cases. But nevertheless, the, the, the idea is the same in all of our lives. It's a tremendous thing when the Lord steps in and startles, shocks us, does something that suddenly, as it were, asserts his own utter sovereignty. So that he is not just a plaything in our hands, a plaything of our imagination, a plaything, as it were, of our own conceptions. We mould him. We, we can almost put words into his mouth. We can tell him what to do. He can't do anything else, almost mechanical. Tremendous thing when the Lord shocks uh, his servant like that or startles him. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, the number of times the servants of the Lord fall down as if dead at the feet of the Lord when he reveals himself to them. The Lord brings them to the place where they're hopelessly dead. They just can't do anything. Just to even hear the Lord, even to behold the Lord, they've got to be raised up by the Lord. See, that sovereignty at work. And uh, in this, of course, little book of Habakkuk, we find the Lord horrifies the prophet. When the prophet argues with the Lord and questions and queries the Lord, the Lord says to him, I am doing a work that you won't believe if you were told. And then the Lord tells him what he's doing. I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Can you imagine it? Supposing we were on our knees and pleading with the Lord to do something as we are, and the Lord will suddenly stand in our midst, as it were, and say, just that's all right, I'm raising up the World Council of Churches. Can you see the shock that there would be in some people's ideas? And they're feeling, no, it cannot be. Cannot be. And this, you see, is a very, very salutary thing indeed, because it's often the beginning of a healthy relationship to the Lord. Unless you and I have been thoroughly shocked by the Lord in this way, or startled by the, by, by the Lord, we tend to keep the Lord in, our, in a mould of our own making. It's only when you and I have been thoroughly shocked, so deeply that we have a deep-seated argument with him, finally brought through into a place where we know what it is, have a, to, to be under his lordship, to have a healthy relationship to the Lord. Well, that's where we, if I remember rightly, that's where we ended last week, on this point, that it's a good thing to have a shock um, given to us uh, by the Lord. And we should ask him, uh, in his grace, to see to it that this terrible, terrible capacity and faculty in every one of us for reducing the Lord to a mould of our own making may be broken continually by him. This, of course, is, but putting it another way, all to do with faith, which is the key to this book, this is why the Lord ha causes this law of the humanly impossible to work in our lives and in his work, to bring us all the time to the place where we just can't go on, we can hardly breathe spiritually anymore unless he comes in. It's just to make sure that we know something of the greatness of the Lord and that that greatness is being preserved from these clammy hands of ours that all the time wish to steady the ark and get around it and sort of put little additions to it and safeguard it and all the rest of it. 
So, we have seen that the key that opens this book is Habakkuk 2 and chapter 4. Uh, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Um, My righteous one, or the just, shall live by faith. Now, it is interesting. God requires not merely faith, but faithfulness. For the Hebrew here is faithfulness. The just or the righteous one shall live by or in his faithfulness. That's the word. And the Lord doesn't merely require faith in Habakkuk. He requires faithfulness. And this, I believe, is very important. Because when Paul takes it up, and the way it's come to us, most of us only quote it as the just shall live by faith, or by his faith. But in the original, and in the, fir- in the first time it was given, it was the righteous shall live in his faithfulness. And the thought behind it is that it's not just faith, but faith in its outworking that the Lord looks for. There's a a common fallacy amongst us Christians, and it's here in this room, that faith is an intellectual thing. Of course, we all tell the unbeliever, the unsaved, we say to them, now it's not faith up here, but it's faith down here. Um, You can't just come to the Lord with faith up here. You can believe all about God, but you must believe in God, you see. But all of us have got this idea that faith is essentially an intellectual thing. In other words, it is a matter to do with the mind. And not really so much with the heart. It's something up here. And you often hear people talking about faith and love as if they're absolute opposites. You see? One is all to do with the heart and the other is all to do with the mind. As if it's just merely and only an intellectual matter. But you see, faith is Always experimental. Always. God did not save us because we believed up here something. God saved us when we actually, that faith up here, worked out. And we did something. And true faith, faith which is the gift of God, is always experimental. It is the means by which you take hold of God. The means by which you open up to God. It's not just that you sit in an armchair and believe things about the Lord. Or even believe in the Lord. No, every time it means that somehow or other there's a reaching out and a taking. Positive taking of him. Taking of something more of him. Now that, I believe, is very very important. And we see this in Habakkuk. His problem it has been uh, to do with faith in the head. Um, in fact, um, this, his, his problem is really simply that faith up here has created trouble. I wonder if that's clear enough to everyone this evening. You see, what we find in the book of Habakkuk is this, that he has got a faith in the head 
which God has got to remove and, and, and bring him into a faith in the heart. It was because he got faith up here that he was presented with a problem. It was his intellectual type of faith that had an argument with the Lord. He was perfectly prepared to believe in God. Anyone who thinks he had a difficulty in believing in God doesn't understand Habakkuk. He believed in God with all his heart. But his difficulty was, how can God do so and so and so and so if he's so and so and so and so? It was this kind of faith. It was the faith of reason. The faith of the intellect. The faith which had come to the place where it could repose its trust in the Lord so long as it does, the Lord doesn't shock it. As long as the Lord doesn't do anything contrary to that intellect. Contrary to that conception that is up here. It's all right. But should the Lord do something that... Uh, Faith in the intellect up here can't uh, see, can't understand. Then there's trouble, there's a breakdown, uh, there's a collapse. You see, with his problems and difficulties, this is the interesting thing about Habakkuk, with his problems and his difficulties exactly the same in effect, he sees this, that the just shall live by faith or live in his faithfulness. And he's led into an experiencing of the Lord himself through such faith. It was as if Habakkuk suddenly saw that he'd come to an end spiritually. His mind could not accept what the Lord was doing. His intellect was in ruins, if you like, spiritually. The Lord had done something that had contradicted everything he'd really believed. He couldn't accept it. And there was only one word that the Lord gave, and that was that the just one, the righteous one, my righteous one, shall live in his faith. And the accent was on live. Live. Shall live. And it was through that that Habakkuk came to experience the Lord himself in a living way. And you see, such faith is the key always to victory. And it's the key to real prayer. And it's the key to worship. We shall say a little more about that in a moment. But I would like to say this. If you have difficulty in prayer, it's not just Satan. It is very probable that somewhere or other there's an evil heart of unbelief. You cannot really pray, really pray, when you've got doubts about the Lord. When you've got an argument with the Lord. When you've got some big question and query that, or something the Lord's done that you don't accept and will not accept. And you can't pray. And if you are living a defeated life, it's no good just blaming Satan. 
or blaming your brothers and sisters, or blaming even yourself, in one sense. It could be that somewhere or other you've got doubts about the Lord. Because God's word says very simply this rather interesting thing. What is this that overcometh, uh, this is that which overcometh the world, even our faith? So victory is linked to faith. And if you can't worship, well I can tell you this truly, um, it is because somewhere or other you're entertaining doubts about the Lord. You can't worship. There's no that you can make a, a facade about the thing. You can try to pretend that you're worshipping. But you can't really worship. When you're really worshipping the Lord, it's because of the heart that is confident and clear with him. Now, Habakkuk was led through an experience that a lot of us in this room have got. And that is he was led from an experience of doubts and questions, intellectual and moral problems, um, through all that playground of argument with the Lord, into an experience of faith, not in things, not in people, but in the Lord himself, which led him into a triumph and into a ministry of prayer and into a life of worship such as he had never known before. You see, the book begins with Habakkuk paralyzed in prayer. Now, this is very interesting. This man had got a ministry of prayer. We don't know how long he'd been praying. But we do know he'd got a big ministry of prayer. He'd been travelling before the Lord. But he was paralysed now. It's all gone. The question had come. Why? Why? How long? Don't you care? And he was paralysed. His prayer had gone. Argument had taken its place. Questions had taken its place. No more prayer. It was question. He was paralysed. He was living a defeated life. If you and I could have spoken with Habakkuk at this point, we would have found a very defeated man. Oh, not defeated perhaps in one or two aspects of his life, but I mean, spiritually, he was a defeated man. Because he'd got an argument with the Lord. And there was a shadow that had come right over his life. You know when you're touching someone's got an argument with the Lord. There's a shadow in their life. You could see it in their face. You could see it in, in their being. There's a shadow there. It's not like the man you find at the end of the book. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in him. No, there's a shadow. It's a defeated life. Because worship is usually the evidence, the hallmark of a life living in triumph. And its absence is the hallmark of a life living in defeat. Here then was a defeated life. And it was a life that was devoid of worship. Where is any worship in the first chapter or two of this book? There's no worship. No, far from it. Habakkuk has got a very big um, argument on with the law which leads him to actually accuse the Lord of an attitude to human beings that he, he feels is as bad as the Chaldeans' attitude to other human beings. So, here we are. 
He's devoid of worship, but he's filled with reproach and with argument and with query. But the wonder of it is that this little book, short as it is, ends in a song of triumph and a, and a ministry of prayer. And this little psalm at the end of the book, the last chapter, is called A Prayer of Habakkuk. See, a new prayer ministry had come into being now. Gone through the fire. Gone, as it were, into a crucible of trial. Now it had come out. New ministry of prayer. Uh, a new song of triumph. And a life of continual worship. It, it, it was through faith that he came to that. Now many of us, all of us in this room, I believe, um, think we have faith. But I wonder, have we really got the faith that this little book is seeking to teach us is our great need. It's very important for us to understand. For Habakkuk had learned the secret of faith. And once he learned that secret, the end of this book, as we shall see in a moment, was that it doesn't matter what the devil does now, he can't stop Habakkuk. Habakkuk has got, as it were, into a spiritual atomic bomb-proof shelter. He can't be touched by the enemy. The enemy can do his worst. He can take everything away. He can destroy everything, but he can't touch Habakkuk. Habakkuk's going to go on, just on. His prayer's going on. The victorious life he's living is going to go on, and his worship's going to go on. Something's happened. He had learnt the secret of faith. And so this little book is, as I think we said last week, you could write over this book, Faith Challenged, Faith Taught, Faith Experienced. Well now, can we turn to the outline of the book? If you will keep open before you the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. I have put up on the board something, a simple outline of this book of Habakkuk. Now the book consists of a conversation between the prophet and the Lord. It is set forth, although it may have covered years, it is set forth in the form of a conversation between the prophet and the Lord. And it is rather important uh, if you've got the kind of Bible that you can mark, that you should mark um, who is the speaker. You should see who is the speaker, the various portions. Chapter 1, from verse 2 to verse 4, Habakkuk is the speaker. Habakkuk is the speaker. From verse 5 to verse 11, the Lord is the speaker. He answers Habakkuk. From verse 12 to verse 17, Habakkuk argues with the Lord. And we ought to, to carry that on to chapter 2, verse 1. That is Habakkuk speaking. From chapter 2, chapter two verse 2, right through to verse 19, the Lord speaks. Now, this is a point of controversy, because some would feel that from either verse 5 or from verse 6, Habakkuk is speaking. But I think the moreover of verse 5, moreover, wine is treacherous, the arrogant man shall not abide, seems 
quite clearly to link it to what the, to the portion that uh, makes the law the actual speaker. Chapter 2 and verse 20 is the cry, finally, of Habakkuk. And then chapter 3 is, of course, all the voice of Habakkuk. The book is set forth in, in the um, form of a conversation, conversation, question and answer, really, um, of the prophet, between the prophet um, and the Lord. It begins with Habakkuk's cry of questioning doubt in chapter 1 and verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and thou art not here? And ends with Habakkuk's worship of faith in chapter 3, from verse 17 to verse 19. Now that gives you immediately an idea of an outline. You've got a cry of question and doubt to begin with, and the end is a cry of the worship of faith. Two amazing cries, but in between the two lies a deep experience through which the prophet passed. And then again, um, as you see on the board, the outline is very simple. It's twofold. Um, the first two chapters are taken up with uh, the problem of the prophet. Um, it's quite a simple uh, outline, actually. Um, you will see that the book itself gives a clue to it. Chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of God which Habakkuk the prophet saw, takes you right through those two chapters. Chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, which is the whole of that chapter. So it's got this twofold, uh, simple um, outline. Now shall we look a little more closely at this outline. First of all, in chapter 1, from verse 1 to 4, we have Habakkuk's question. Now, notice something about this question of his. First of all, in verse 3 and verse 4, he, he, the background of his question is the corruption, the evil, and the backsliding of his day. Habakkuk evidently was very deeply aware of what was going on in the nation. Uh, he wasn't the kind of man who could run away like a spiritual hermit and um, cut himself off from conditions which he saw around him. He wasn't just the kind of person that we find amongst Christians even today who's just busy themselves with going on with the Lord, personally. Um, he was concerned in a responsible way for what he could see was happening amongst God's people. And then, as he saw this, he evidently was led into a ministry of real prayer. And it is obvious that he felt that it was a seemingly unanswered cry for help. You see, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and thou wilt not hear? Or cry to thee violence and thou wilt not save? His real question is this, Lord, you seem to be distant. 
You seem to be uncaring. You seem to be inactive. His, his, his question was over the inactivity of God. His point was very simple. Are these not the Lord's people? Is not Jerusalem the city of God? Is not the temple the dwelling place of God? Is he not more concerned than I? Or than any of the faithful? Would be with his people? With this land? Then why? When we take hold of him. Do you think that he may possibly have quoted some of King Solomon's prayer of dedication? Which may well have been known to him quite well known to that if we turn toward this place and confess and take hold of the Lord, then the Lord will hear an answer from heaven. But the Lord wasn't hearing, and the Lord wasn't answering. And somehow or other to the prophet Habakkuk, it just seemed as if the Lord was standing aside, allowing the whole thing to take place. This was his, the reason or the basis of his great why of verse 2 and verse 3. And this is very important. The why that has come into his life has completely unsettled him. Now it is impossible to have a why over the Lord without being unsettled. And I don't know whether I'm talking to people who've got any experience of having an argument with but you will know from your own experience, if you ever have, that as soon as you start on the whys and the wherefores, you lose your peace. You become unsettled. And once you start along that line, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. As if something is pressing it in, pressing it in, pressing it onto an issue. You start on the line, first of all, just a little one. Why? Why does the Lord not do this? Before long, it's gone a little further. It's gone a little deeper. Before long, it's taken a bit more in its stride. And it's gone deep. Before long, everything is at a halt in your life. You feel you're living a kind of hip hypocrisy. You're, you've got a, like a cloak of religion around you. You've got an awful argument with the Lord. You're filled with wise. Filled with queries and questions. And the Lord seems to give no real adequate answer. Well, this is the question of Habakkuk. He got a why. And if you mean business with the Lord, and if your natural life and my natural life is going to be exposed, we shall have whys and wherefores. Because, believe me, it takes a very, very disciplined person not to utter whys and wherefores. And once the Holy Spirit gets to work on us to expose what we are, it's not long before we're presented with the trouble and a problem which brings a big why into our life. <coughs> a big wherefore. Why have you done this? Wherefore do you not so and so and so and so and so? Well, unsettled. Well, that's the verse. Now look at the Lord's answer from verse 5 to verse 11. The Lord answers very simply. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. The Lord is active. 
though not apparently so. That's his answer. I am actually working, he says, though you wouldn't believe it. How true that was as well, as we shall see in the next uh, few uh, paragraphs. The Lord tells the prophet that he's raising up the Chaldeans. That's what he's doing. His answer to the why of Habakkuk is, I'm doing something. I am raising up the Chaldeans. And then I want you also to look it from verse um, uh, 6 onwards to verse 11. The Lord's description, now mark this, the Lord's description of the Chaldeans' unrighteousness. I cannot help feel at times that there is some humour uh, in Scripture and with the Lord as well. I think our own sense of humour is probably a reflection of something divine. And it seems to me amazing that the Lord here, deliberately, in answering the prophet's question, presents him with a far more terrible problem. He deliberately not just leaves it at, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which the prophet might have intellectually been able to get around and say, well, of course, they would probably be all right, the Lord would probably purge them, purify them, and perhaps do make them slightly different. No, the Lord himself describes them as an evil, unrighteous, hasty, bitter nation. And he says to the prophet, this is my work. I'm doing this. Then if you go on uh, from verse 12, the next section in this first large portion of this book is Habakkuk's arraignment of the Lord. I've chosen that word with care. Habakkuk's arraignment of the Lord. It's no longer now a query. Oh no, now you must see the seriousness of this. No longer a query, it's an arraignment. In other words, this is the first case of a prophet arraigning the Lord. He is accusing the Lord of being unjust. Now, when you look into it, it's very interesting. First, you see, the prophet is absolutely horrified and shocked. Why is he horrified and shocked? In verse 13, how can a righteous, pure God raise up an unrighteous, impure instrument to deal with something not so unrighteous and impure as the instrument is using. How can the Lord do that? You see, beautifully put here, why dost thou look on faithless men? In other words, why do you, you, you take men without any faith at all? To, um, and art silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. This is the argument of the prophet, and with this he arraigns the Lord. How can the Lord do this thing? And from this point he goes on, and this is a very amazing um, portion actually of Habakkuk, from verse 14 to verse 17, he says, Thou, listen to this charge, thou makest men like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. What a charge! This is how deep it's got. This is how far the argument's gone. Habakkuk is saying to the Lord, you've made us all just like fish, like slimy things that live on the seabed. That's what you've done. 
Your attitude to us is exactly the same as the Assyrians' attitude or the, or the Babylonians' attitude to the nations around them. And he goes straight on and he mixes up the Lord's character with the character of the people he's raising up. What a serious thing. He goes on, you see. He, says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his seine. So he rejoices and, and exults. You see, when you and I have a why in our heart, it's nearly always first it comes just out of our own being, but before long hell's got into it. And hell is driving it to its logical conclusion, a complete rift. And mark you, all of this has begun with faith. With a faith up here. Right, now let's get it perfectly clear. If, if Habakkuk had been like some people in this room, he wouldn't have bothered two hoots. For one thing, he would not have been praying for the people. He wouldn't have been at all concerned about the conditions in the country. Therefore, he wouldn't have had this problem. He would never have said why. He would have just been going on slowly in a kind of uh, uh, couldn't care less attitude about anyone else. Just let's go on with the Lord ourselves. He'd be saved an awful lot of trouble. If this prophet had no real faith, as many of us, when we come right down to it, have not. If he had just got the kind of faith which secretly believes that the Lord is really imaginary, but very comforting. The father figure of psychology. Very comforting. Gives us a sense of security. But you have to sort of put things into his mouth and sort of, well, if you want any money provided, you have to slip it round sort of thing. And it comes through his hand. But of course, we all know where it comes from. It's quite simple, really. The father figure mentality. You see, he wouldn't have had this problem. But it was simply because he had a faith that was up here that he had his problem. And it drove him to the point where he arranged the Lord and tells the Lord he's no better than the Babylonians. Now, mark you, he hadn't a conscience about this. In chapter 2 and verse 1, you see exactly what happens. Habakkuk was not going to budge. He's not going to move until he's got an answer to this. Up he goes. He's quite righteous about it. The Lord's in the wrong in this matter. The Lord's in the wrong. He's going up into his watchtower and he's going to take up his watch. Not no conscience about this rift with the Lord at all. The Lord's wrong on this. Just like Jonah went out and sat down for the 40 days and 40 nights to see. It just shows you, see, are you and I honest with ourselves? Really honest with ourselves? Don't you think sometimes this is what's in us about the Lord? Like Jonah, we go and sit out the 40 days and 40 nights, like Habakkuk. Out we go to, uh, to wait. Because Habakkuk feels in his heart he's scored such a point that the Lord's got to do something about it. Evidently, as far as Habakkuk was concerned, the heavens were going to fall in. Now, I mean, he really made a big point. I'm going to see, he says, what the Lord will answer concerning my complaint. Now, here you must note both the obstinacy and the arrogance of intellectual doubt. 
And one of the points about this kind of what I call intellectual doubt is this, that the person in whom it is so obvious is always unaware of either their obstinacy or their arrogance. Here it is. There's an obstinacy here. Heaven itself has got to be brought to heal. And he's not going to budge until he's got an answer to this problem. And there's an arrogance too. Believe that the Lord himself is going to be brought to heal. You will be interested to know that the rabbis uh, believe that this is one of the portions of scripture changed by some of the scribes. They felt it was so irreverent that they've me messed up a number of the I's and the these. So that to, to this day we're not sure what is, what is really the Lord. See here we've got it. I, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Even Professor Ellison and Bruce both agree on this, that, the, that it's probable here that it's what thou would answer concerning my complaint. See? It seems to be so utterly irreverent, right? Let's go on, chapter 2, verse 2 to 19, we've got the Lord's reply. Habakkuk is told to write everything down in verse 2 so plainly that it can be read at a glance. That's how Moffat puts it. This here, this little phrase, so he may run who reads it, is a Hebrew idiom, which means that it can be run, that it can be read very quickly. A person running can read it. Got the idea? It can be read at a glance. Now, this is the little book of Habakkuk. It can be almost read at a glance. The, 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 the point of this book, the key to this book, the message of this book, is something so patent, so obvious. He has done just what he was told to do. And it reveals the, the importance the Lord attaches to the message of this book. He doesn't want it to be obscured. He wants it to be able to be read at a glance by people who are arrogant and obstinate, who may not sit down and really think this out. They must be allowed to see this message in a swift, hasty moment. That's a point, you know. And then, too, we also see in here, God's purpose will not be fulfilled early nor late. Verse 3. It's very, very interesting, isn't it? Um, the Lord answers, replies to this terrible arraignment of the prophet. He says... For still the vision awaits its time. It's time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord's not going to be early. He's not going to be late. It's got its time. And the Lord's saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I know exactly what I'm doing. You might not understand why I'm raising up the Chaldeans, but I know. I know that you're all concerned about the house, about the temple, about the city, about the land, about the inheritance. That's the vision. But it'll come. It'll come. Not early, not late. I'm doing a work which you can't understand. But one day it will be understood. This is of great comfort to us when we have a great why and a wherefore about the inactivity of God. Because the Lord's purpose is going to be fulfilled not early, nor late. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. And the word surely doesn't just mean uh, be sure, but it will come in surety. The time is certain. It's fixed. It's sure. And then the Lord puts his finger on faith. Now, note this in um, verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, 
the Hebrews, we've already said, is faithfulness or full of faith. The Lord puts his finger upon this as is the, the just shall live in his faithfulness. Now, you may have a question, Habakkuk. You may have an argument. It may have gone very deeply. But I know exactly what I'm doing and this is my only answer. My righteous one shall live in his full of faithness. What an answer. Habakkuk doesn't get an answer to his problem. The Lord never tells him how he can take a righteous, pure God can use an unrighteous, impure instrument. He never tells him, never answers him. Never. He just says this, my righteous one shall live by faith. And mark something else too. This word, this Hebrew word faithfulness is most important. It ties faith to experience and practice. He's not saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, sit down and have a fatalistic attitude. Oh, what's going to be, will be. The Lord's on the throne. He'll do it. Oh, no. Habakkuk, you've got to learn what faith is. To be full of faith in a situation that gives you every evidence that I've deserted. My purpose. And even the faithful. For you must remember that the faithful amongst God's people were not preserved from the siege or desolation. They suffered. Oh, this is a word that poor Habakkuk, when he received it, what did it mean really to him? I think we've got to just go a little deeper than this. That first part, I've got these different versions here because there's not one version that translates it um, clearly. Um, it cannot really be translated clearly. The Hebrew is so obscure that we have many different ways of translating it. In the authorised version it is, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. In the American Standard Version, it is um, this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright in him. And in here, it is this, Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail. Now, there are some very interesting things about this word. I've looked into it, and these are the things I've discovered. The point in that the Lord is making is this. My righteous one, on the one hand, by faith, shall live. But the one who is, whose soul is not upright shall fail. That's the point. Unbelief, arrogant unbelief, or doubt, will always fail. Always. And this is the thing that poor Habakkuk is learning. That he may have all the most justified intellectual problems in the world, but if he lives in the mess that they create, he will die. He will fail. Whereas if he puts himself into the hands of his God, in utter faith, he will live. When I looked into these words, I found this very, very interesting because the word puffed up, puffed up, can be translated lifted up or presumptuous. It is translated in the, in the Bible elsewhere by presumed. 
presume. It is the picture of something presumptuous. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, you have a very interesting little word that says, knowledge puffeth up. And I wonder whether that's not almost a commentary on this. His soul is puffed up, it's lifted up. This is not the problem of a person who's credulous so much as the person who's got a thinking mind is puffed up. Knowledge does puff up. At one point, but the word upright, his soul is not upright within him. If you look at Proverbs 3 and verse 6, you've got the exact same word and I think it almost uh, pinpoints the meaning in here. Proverbs 3, verse 6. Listen, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now the word direct is exactly the same as the word upright here. He, his soul is not upright in him. The word means straight. His soul is not straight. This word, he shall direct thy path, he shall make straight thy path. He will make them plain. Now we in this country don't know much about this, but in the east where you have no lights, it's a tremendous thing to have a smooth path. If you've got all those rocks and little crevices and gullies and so on, it's a terrible thing to walk. And the thought is this, that if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, he will make plain or straight or smooth your path. Now the Lord is saying about this other uh, person when he's, as it were, giving us these two, he's saying of this other person, his soul is not upright in him. It's not smooth, it's not straight, it's not open. It's crooked. It's closed. It's mixed. It's deceitful. Now this principle in verse 4 is true whether of the unsaved or the saved. If we want to refer to the unsaved, those who want to live by their own knowledge of things, well, the end is failure. But it's also true of us who are the Lord. An evil heart of unbelief always leads in the end into a snare. Always. The Lord wants us to be those who've got a smooth, straight, open, transparent way with him. And how does that come about? By faith. The just shall live by faith. In the rest of that chapter, of chapter 2 of Habakkuk, you have the end of the Chaldeans described in five great woes. Each section begins with the word woe, except for the last section where it comes in the middle of it. But the thought is just the same, that arrogant unbelief always ends in failure and self-destruction. That is its way. And if you and I know anything about a why in our life which leads us to arraign the Lord, we must surely know something in the end of both failure and self-destruction. We destroy ourselves. It's the way of such destruction. 
And the wonderful thing is, right in the middle of that chapter, in verse 14, we have a very comforting little word, which has brought great help to many people, that just states that the Lord's going to get his own way in the end, whatever happens, unbelief or belief. In, in verse 14 of chapter 2, the earth will be filled with the glory of God, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 20, we have the effect on Habakkuk. The effect is very interesting. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk recognizes that the Lord is on the throne. And he's in his holy temple. Judgment's coming in. Devastation's coming. Much else is coming. But the Lord's there. Now what's happened to Habakkuk? Where's his why gone? Where's his wherefore gone? What's happened? Something's happened. Very interesting. It's the same with Job. After all that long battle, the end is that Job is silent. Now, isn't it interesting, with Job, he begins by being silent. If only Job had gone on like that. You remember, he bowed before the Lord. So the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And for seven days, he was silent. It was then his friends who started poor Job by dragging up the past and dragging up every possible reason for what had happened to him uh, and so on. You see, really, in the end, after the whole thing's exposed and out in the open, when the Lord really speaks, Job is silent. And Habakkuk is the same. He's had a terrible argument with the Lord. He hasn't got an answer. Just Job never got an answer. But he's seen the Lord. And the Lord has met him. That's really the point. And he's silent. Now here we discover that uh, Habakkuk calls upon the whole earth to be silent as well. He really just said, every one of you has got a question, just be quiet. Just be quiet. He's so convinced now that the Lord knows what he's doing, that he he's got no more questions. He wants everyone else to be quiet. Let the whole earth keep silence before him. Now, silence, which is a, a, a rare quality in most human beings, uh, the real kind of silence, the right kind of silence, the wrong kind of silence. But the right kind of silence is a point of very deep experience. When a person really has come into a place of queries and questions, I mean, led into a seeing and hearing of the Lord. And then they become silent. It's a point of very, very deep experience indeed. Sometimes people think that we're trying to say that no one should have any questions, no one should think anything out. Far from it. But you'll never, in fact, come into an experience of the Lord that way. You come into an experience of the Lord by having insoluble problems which in the end you learn to be silent over. And in that way you come into a knowledge of the Lord which no one can ever take away from you and no one else can obtain. It comes this way. It's often overlooked, an overlooked necessity. People are so full of their problems and then difficulties and oh that the Lord could bring us to the place of absolute silence in this sense silence is truly golden 
And then lastly, in the chapter, the third chapter, you have the triumph of the prophet. <clears throat> there are three things we should just say about this chapter. First, you notice this little word, shigionos, or shigayan, shigayan. We don't really know what it means. It only occurs one other place in the Bible, that's in Psalm 7. And it seems to describe a wild cry of distress and praise. If you can put those two together. Um, the most sensible suggestion so far is that it <clears throat> describes the kind of meter with which such a cry of distress and praise is written and the kind of music that should accompany it. So this is a key, at any rate, to something of this prayer of Habakkuk. He's still described as stress in this, you know. Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed. His situation hasn't changed. He has changed. But everything around him is the same. That's the point. The one thing that's been added is praise. To distress has been added praise. Then I would also like to point out another interesting thing uh, for every, to everyone, and that is that the tenses of this psalm are absolutely uncertain. Now, isn't this wonderful? The tenses of this psalm are absolutely uncertain. We don't know whether we should put them all in the past, all in the present, or all in the future. So some people say this psalm is a wonderful description of history, the Exodus, and then of the crossing of Jordan. Others say no, it is a wonderful description of a vision of the Lord that, that he's got, that Habakkuk's got, the Lord coming forth. And others say no, it isn't. It's a wonderful prophecy of what the Lord's going to do, and it's fulfilled in the days of, of, Nehemiah, of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But, you know, the wonderful thing is the Holy Spirit has allowed the whole thing to be uncertain. Isn't that wonderful? Or perhaps you don't see it. It's very wonderful at present, but we will in just one moment. And then the third thing is this. Have we, here we see the prophet, by God's grace, finally triumphing. And he doesn't just get through, as we say. He's not just getting through. Oh, no, no. He's conquering. He's conquering. Now, this prophet is facing far more serious a problem than anyone in this room at present. And yet, here is one who's not just getting through and saying, all right, all right, I won't ask any more questions, Lord, I won't, I'll, I'll try and be quiet, but now I'll take up my old prayer ministry again, and I'll, I'll, I'll take up my old uh, ministry of the Word again, and I'll just get on, Lord, oh, isn't it terrible? And everyone saw this gloomy face, and, oh, poor Habakkuk. No, 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 he wasn't getting through, as so often we say, which I feel is almost a rude word. Uh, amongst us. It's got a sense somehow that you, you don't get through with glory. You just get through barely. Barely get through. No. No, this thought here is that he's got, he's got through with a glory. He's got through with a lot to spare. He's more than conqueror, this one. He's got into the place of well, now you see here, there are four things. I haven't put any verses uh, with this because they, these are to be taken as just a description, really, of the whole chapter. The first is this, we've got a renewed ministry. 
Now, isn't this wonderful? The triumph of the prophet leads him into a new, renewed ministry. Now, you know, when you and I have got a question over the ways of the Lord, we lose our ministry. It comes under a cloud. It becomes restricted. Our function becomes somehow uh, closed up. But when we triumph, and often that triumph is not that the circumstances change. We change. The circumstances remain the same. We have a renewed ministry. Now here we see the prophet with a renewed ministry. He's passed through deep waters to a new experience of the Lord. And now his ministry is given back to him. Habakkuk, it's as if the Lord is saying, Habakkuk, you know that ministry of travail you had? It all went, didn't it? In the crucible, you lost it all. You were just filled with nagging fears and doubts and questions. Now Habakkuk, here it is back. And so, in the most wonderful way, the psalm is called a prayer. A prayer. His prayer ministry is given back to him. He's got it back. And oh, prayer. This, if this is a sample of the ministry in prayer of having a, what a man of prayer. Why, I wish we could have him in the times of prayer. What a comforting, what an encouragement to be, what life there is in this man's ministry of prayer. He's got something renewed. But it's not just the old ministry. No, it's something that's gone right through the flame and come out with an added luster and glory and depth. A renewed ministry. There's no questions here. There's no doubts. He speaks about rottenness entering into his bones. He speaks about trembling. He speaks about fear being in his heart. But there's no question. It's all there. This is the wonder of it. It's the same Habakkuk in a sense, with the same situation. But there's no questions now. He's passed out of questions, into silence, out of silence, into a ministry. And so, you see, really, when you look at it, why did I say the wonder about those tenses? Well, that's just the point. You've got a most wonderful vision that he had of the Lord. And you see, you can take it three ways. He was describing the Lord coming out in history to realize his purpose. How he came out in Egypt and took his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness and over the Jordan into the land and possessed it for them. Or it could be taken, here is the Lord as Habakkuk is seeing him today at the point. This is the Lord ever, ever moving, ever, ever active. Coming out, his ways, it says in here in this psalm, his ways, his goings are of old. That's a wonderful word. It means his ways are of everlasting, his goings are from everlasting. In other words, he's always the same. He was coming out in history, he's coming out now, but he's coming out in the future. It really is Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. That's what the prophets come to. Well, what an interpretation of it. The Lord who was with Daniel yesterday will be with me today and perhaps if I was an old man and on my deathbed, you tomorrow. It's the same God. He doesn't change. He's the same. Now, isn't that wonderful? Miss Fishback was on Sunday. All experiences don't count. It's the eternal reality of God that counts. That's the point. That's what Habakkuk came into. 
It wasn't the little experiences. No, he'd left his experience behind. He'd come into an experience of the eternal reality of what God is. Yesterday he did this. Today he's the same. Tomorrow he will do. I think that's wonderful. And you see, we see here it, um, his ministry flows from an intimate knowledge of the Lord himself. He explains history here. He explains the present and he explains the future. It all flows from his knowledge of the Lord. Well, that's a renewed ministry. And the second thing is we have a truer confidence in the Lord. A truer confidence, a truer confidence for prophet. It reminds me very much of that little word in Isaiah, and quietness and confidence should be your strength. There's a new strength now in Habakkuk. Why? Because that fatal weakness of his old natural life has been dealt with, that's why. Oh, the devil knows just where to get you and just where to get me. And it always comes along the same line. Why? That's where they begin. Why do you do this? Why don't you do that? An argument. It's gone. In quietness and in confidence will be a strength. Here, then, is a truer confidence now. He thought he had a confidence in the law when he began out, you know. A man who prays for many years about a matter has a confidence in the Lord, you know. But it wasn't the right kind of confidence. It had to be shocked. It had to be dealt with. Now there's a confidence here that's a truer confidence. A confidence that can stand the test now that's coming. And so we must remember this. To become strong in faith is not a question of self-assurance, of self-sufficiency, or of knowledge, or of credulity. To become strong in faith comes only through the shattering of what we are out of everything that's false, step by step. False faith. False confident, false foundations, all shattered. And the Lord sometimes does that by presenting us with a problem for which he ne with, uh, presenting us with a problem which he never explains. Well, there you are, it's a truer confidence. What happens? The Lord shatters the prophet. But what is the result? He brings his feet down upon the rock. That's what he does. On the rock. He's founded now on the rock. And furthermore, the rock gets into him. What did the Lord mean when he said, Thou, thou art Peter, but upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, it was a pun of the, uh, that word. Thou art just a little piece of the rock, but upon this rock, this great rock, I will build my church. Wasn't he simply saying, Peter, upon what I am, the church is going to be built, but I'm going to put something of what I am into you? And wasn't, didn't Peter have to go into an experience where all that self-confidence and assurance and sufficiency was shattered? And out he came. The rock had got into him. His feet were placed on the rock, and the rock came into him. That's true confidence. Now, there are not many of us in this room who could stand if the enemy really began to blast. 
And this is why the Lord has to bring our feet down upon that rock and bring the rock into us. A pure confidence. Habakkuk's circumstances don't change. Indeed, they're going to grow worse. But you see, this psalm breathes a quiet, strong confidence in the Lord himself. That's why. He's not got his confidence in things, or in people, but in the Lord. And then you'll see, thirdly, it is a deeper experience. Now this is, it's quite obvious, Habakkuk has left mere experiences behind, and he's come to an experience of the Lord himself. He no longer talks about uh, things. He's now talking about the Lord. This psalm is filled with the Lord. The Lord coming forth. The Lord doing this. The Lord doing that. He only makes one reference to himself. And one when he says, Rottenness has entered into my bones. Well, that's not a very comforting picture. But you see, he's filled with the Lord. He's just filled with the Lord. He's come into an experience. What has happened? The situation, as we have said, has not changed. He still has an unanswered problem. You must not forget that. He still faces the desolation and devastation that's coming, but he's come to his final rest in the Lord himself. That's the point. He's come home. That's all. He's come home. And he has discovered this, that the Lord is the one lasting reality. The one lasting reality. If you are trying to find reality in people, you won't find anything. The Lord is the lasting reality. If you are putting confidence in people and things, it'll go. The Lord is the lasting reality. And so he speaks in verse 19, they're saying that God is his strength. God the Lord is my strength. This is the point now. He's come home. Everything else may change and go, but the Lord is his strength. And the Lord's going to give him the ability to live in difficult places. This little word, hindspeak. Well, I think most of you know about hindspeak. We've talked about it a number of times, not only myself, but others as well. And you will know that the hind is a creature that lives in difficult, inaccessible places. Furthermore, it's been given feet to that make it possible for it to live and forage and develop and increase in those very places. As soon as it comes down onto the flat of granite in danger, but whilst it's up there living in the inaccessible peaks, it's safe. So Habakkuk's can finally come to this. This is the experience that Habakkuk has got. Not I will make my feet hindsight, but thou The Lord's not only my strength, but he's going to give me the ability to live in difficult places. Now that's tremendous, really, when you think of it. He, it says, he makes me tread upon my high places. There is the experience of Habakkuk. Faith has brought him not into an experience of things, of teachings, but into an experience of the Lord that is going to fit him to the situation in which he lives. Now, maybe the Lord's going to one day call us to live in such a situation. Maybe not, but be assured of this. The Lord will fit us for exactly the situation in which he means us to live. If we need hind feet, hind feet will be given us. 
We come to an experience of the Lord like that, that's why. And lastly, to triumphant worship of the prophet. Everything they go, but Habakkuk is going to worship the Lord. Now with such, the devil's nonplussed. Because what can he do? All right, I know what he could do with some of us. Take away the job. Take away the income. All right, take away the husband. Take away the wife. Take away the children. Take away the home. All right, take away the health. He's got us. He's got us. We'll not praise the Lord. We'll not pray. We'll sink like a stone. The devil knows. But what does the devil do with someone who has been brought through to the place where he can take it all away and he still goes on worshipping the Lord? What can he do? He is nonplussed. That's the safest place on earth to be, believe me. For even if you put yourself into the hands of the devil, well, given everything you wanted, you'd not be safe in the end. But the safest place to get to is a place where if everything's taken away because the Lord is the reality of your life, you go on. What can the devil do? This is what the devil's done again and again in history. He's been given... Uh, Authority to just do this with God's children. And he's discovered again and again those that he can't remove. Their blood has become the seed of the church. He can't get rid of them. He can't do anything with them. What a place to get to. Without faith, there will be little real worship. And certainly no sustained life of worship. Because faith is the key. Oh, if we could only just learn then this simple lesson. There we must end. But I must just say this one thing. The Septuagint version adds one little phrase that is nowhere else in any other version. And as you know, the Septuagint is the oldest version. It's generally considered that it is a misunderstanding of the directions given in the Hebrew to the um, choir master. But it's a very beautiful addition. Listen, this is what the Septuagint says. It says, The Lord my God is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me tread upon my high places that I may conquer by his song. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it may not be a correct uh, addition, but it's a wonderful and it's a true addition, that I may conquer by his song. That's what Habakkuk in the end discovered. He'd still got his moral intellectual problems. He'd still got the same circumstances. But he discovered the Lord. And you know, although it may seem trite to say so, in all our lives there comes a point where knowledge no longer helps. Where it's just trite, superficial. It's surface. And where it is our knowledge of the Lord himself that is the abiding thing. Isn't that so?
times when no amount of quoting of scriptures or verses or doctrine or anything else will help us. But just a sense of that peace which passes all understanding just coming in. The sense that we've got the Lord. We know the Lord. This is Habakkuk. He's gone right through this deep experience, passed through the hammer of God, and he's come out into a place now where he knows the Lord in such a way that with all the same old problems up here, he can yet go on with the unanswered. The just, the righteous, shall live in his faithfulness. Shall we pray? We apologise to the listener for the deterioration in the tape quality at the end. This was due to interference on the master tape when it was originally made. We do apologise.